On October 22nd, 1996, in St. Martin's in the Fields Church in central London, a congregation of some 200 people described the next day by the British newspaper, the Daily Telegraph, as admirers gathered to celebrate the life of the famous 20th century English novelist, Sir Kingsley Amis, or Amos, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that. The paper described it as a secular service with no hymns or prayers, just a lot of laughter. During the service, the late Sir Kingsley's son, the novelist Martin Amis, told the following story, recalling a conversation his father had with the Russian poet and novelist Yevgeny Yevtushenko. Forgive me if I butchered that name. Yevtushenko, perhaps uh, having mistakenly assumed that all Englishmen are Christians, asked Amos if it were true that he were an atheist. Well, yes, Sir Kingsley responded. And then he added this, but it is more than that. I hate him. I hate him. To hear these words should give us pause. And kind of make us maybe ask a question. How is it possible that someone who considers themselves an atheist, meaning non-theist or someone who does not believe in God, hates someone that doesn't exist? The two seem to be mutually exclusive. Leads to another question. Why? Why do people respond this way to God, to Christianity, and to Jesus Christ? For Amos, he actually thought God was the guilty one. He blamed God for the sin and suffering that he saw in this world. What we we see here is that unbelief and rejection is actually paired with hatred. That unbelief and rejection actually leads to this hatred. And we are going to see in this passage, even though people have a lot of different reasons why they hate God or why they hate Christianity or why they hate Jesus Christ, we are going to see the main reason why that Jesus tells us about today. Actually, it's linked to two other reasons, but these two other reasons bring about the main reason. And what I think also what Jesus wants us to see here is that the same reasons that they hated Jesus Christ are going to be the same reason or the same reasons that they hate those who are going to follow him. And more importantly, that what we're going to see is that hating Jesus has consequences. And hating Jesus has a connection as well. Two reasons that we're going to be looking at today, the first reason, and both lead to the same idea. So, they hate him because of his words, and they hate him because of his works. 
And we're going to see where both of these things lead to the main reason why this animosity, this hatred, and ultimately violence that people have done towards Jesus Christ. Chapter 15, starting out verses 21 and 22 here. But these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, uh, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. These things that Jesus is talking about goes back to the persecutions that they are going to face. Why, why, why are people doing these things mainly to his disciples? Why, are they, why would they be persecuting them? Why, why does the world have this animosity towards them? Why are they insulting them? Well, it's mainly because of their association with Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be saying throughout this sermon, it's their association and our, our association with the historical biblical Jesus Christ. And you'll see why I'm going to say that throughout, because a lot of people can claim the name of Jesus Christ, but it is not the Jesus Christ that we are talking about here today. We've said this before. If, you, if we want an easy life, if we don't want to face these persecutions, if we want to be friends in, with the world and welcomed by this world, then leave behind the historical biblical Jesus Christ and you will not have these issues. Our association with Jesus Christ, our abiding in Him, our loving Him and our following Him and, and proclaiming the truth that He says is going to bring about the same animosity that he has faced. Jesus makes this connection to his disciples. This is the union that he has with us. As a matter of fact, later on, he's, he's going to tell, when he confronts Saul on the road, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Those who persecute the followers of Jesus Christ are actually persecuting Jesus Christ himself. This is the negative effects of abiding in Jesus Christ. If you and I are abiding and loving and following Jesus Christ, the world is going to have the same reaction that it had towards him, and it is one of hatred. But I want us to remember something, though. As we, as we are going through this, as we are facing this type of persecution, Jesus says, far be it that you are cursed, even though it's going to feel that way. Maybe you're going to lose your friends. Maybe you're going to lose a relationship that you care about. Maybe your family is going to turn away from you. Maybe the people at your work are going to make fun of you. Jesus says, blessed are you when this happens. It's the opposite. Even though we may feel this way, even though these things are happening in our lives, we're going to think we're cursed at that time, and maybe people are really cursing at us. Jesus says, blessed are you when they insult you, when they persecute you, when they falsely say all kinds of evils against you. How many, how many times are we hearing now that when Christians proclaim the truth that we're called haters, that we're called bigots, that we're called insensitive, blessed are you when they do this. Jesus is constantly reminding us and getting us to, to fix our minds and our hearts where? On heaven. We're going to lose things in this world. That's what's going to happen. But as we lose things in this world, guess what? We're, we're gaining there. He reminds us of that. 
What is interesting here is that he says uh, they, they don't know God. Uh, they're ignorant of him. Now, we have to be reminded of who he is talking about here. These are the people who were entrusted with the, 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 with the scriptures, the, with the law, the prophets. These are the people who, who were actually supposed to know God and actually teach other people about him. And Jesus says, they're ignorant of the one who sent me. And it's out of this ignorance, and Paul is later going to say that they have a what? A zeal without knowledge. They are so zealous for this God that they don't even know. Now, if that is happening in Jesus' context, if the second person of the Trinity, God Almighty, comes down and takes the form of a man, and the people who are supposed to truly know and understand God persecute him and kill him, what do you think the response is going to be to us in our culture and context today? For those people who truly don't know God, not as much as these people were supposed to. But then Jesus gets to the heart of it, doesn't he? What does he say here? If I had not come and spoken, they would not have sinned. Jesus is not saying that these individuals possessed no sin until he came and spoke. What Jesus is saying is that now that I have come and I have revealed the truth, I've revealed the truth of the condition of man, and I re- revealed the truth of how that condition is taken care of. I revealed the truth of who I am. And they have rejected it. They have no excuse. They own their sin. They are guilty. And because Jesus shines light on their sinfulness, they hate him. That's the reason. Both times, his words and his works shine light on who they are, on who he is, and they hate him and reject him for it. We've talked about it before. There's only two responses to Jesus Christ. You can accept him, and you can accept his words, and you can repent of your sin, and you can turn and love him, and you can love those who follow him. Or you can reject him. You can reject him. You can reject his words. You can reject his work on the cross. And you can have a hatred towards him and a hatred towards those who love him. People are going to tell you there's a third option. We'll talk about the third option, but it really falls into the second A congressional investigation into the 737 MAX airplane found culpability with both Boeing, the airplane manufacturer, as well as the FAA, that was the agency that was charged with its critical oversight. Specifically, the report criticizes Boeing for having a culture of concealment and for an agency for being fundamentally flawed. All 737 MAX airplanes have been removed from active use since March of 2019 after two crashes in Indonesia and Ethiopia resulted in the deaths of over 300 people. Those two phrases, 
culture of concealment and fundamentally flawed. Guess what? They're not just found in Boeing and the FAA, are they? They are found in the entire human race. And, and I know that is not a popular topic today for me to stand up here and to say, hey, humanity is fundamentally flawed. But that is the absolute truth of what Jesus came down and told us. And it's because he loves us that he came down and told us that. That we have a problem. That problem is sin. And, and what do we want to do with that problem? What do we we want to hide it, don't we? We want to conceal it. So now we're fundamentally flawed and we live in a culture of what? Concealment. How many people want everyone in this room right now to know all your sins? Raise your hand. Don't worry, it's not going to be confession time. <laughs> you ever go to those prayer, prayer nights and, and someone starts praying and they just start rattling and you're like, you're like sweating and you're like wondering when that awkward moment's going to end. So at our prayer night, just a little heads up, please don't confess these sins out loud to people because it might make people feel a little weird. But I don't know anyone that wants all of their sin just laid out for everyone to see. But that's exactly what Jesus does. He exposes our sinfulness and reveals our need for a Savior. And no one wants to see that. No one wants to hear that truth. So they hate Him. They hide it. And they're more guilty for doing it. He says they own their sin now. No, no excuse. You have no excuse. I told you about it. You rejected it. You own it. I used to love doing bad things when I was a kid. I just enjoyed it. I, I, I would do it all the time. Do you know what I hated? Getting caught. It wasn't, it wasn't that I didn't like doing bad things. And I, I would hide and I would lie. I would lie straight to my mother's face. I would steal money, lie. I would do things. I'd sneak out. I would vandalize. I would do all these things. I hated getting caught. And even when I got caught, I had some pretty good excuses. I could write a book on some of it, but I don't want to do that because it would just enable the youth of our, our day. Jesus shines light, and guess what? Takes away all the excuses. We have no excuse anymore. Because not only does he tell us what the problem is, he tells us how to solve it. And now, now we can look at this, and, and before we look outward, because Jesus is definitely talking about unbelievers, right? He's talking about people who've rejected his truth, and who have committed this willful, presumptuous sin. Before we do that, we need to start right here. Because even those of us who have followed Jesus Christ, right, we come in here Sunday after Sunday, and what do we hear? His words, don't we? The question is, do we, do we listen to those words? Because once we're told those words about our sin, about whatever it is, and we reject it, and we say, no, Jesus, this one isn't for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pretend I didn't hear this one. We become more culpable for that rejection. 
Paul tells us judgment begins with where? Right here. Right here. If we're listening and we're following him and we're rejecting, that's hypocritical. And if we're telling others to listen and to accept, but yet there we are living lives of rejecting his words just because his words don't fit this current situation that we're in or don't make it any better, in our perspective, that's hypocritical. And, and, and being a pastor, and I know other leaders or people in ministry, when we confront people on the sin, they're going to take that out on us. And it's not an excuse to, to be mean as we say it or an excuse to, to, to berate people and to attack people or anything like that whatsoever. But we can't hear His truth and, 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 and reject it and then go out into a world and tell them to hear His truth and accept it. So I just I wanted to, before we look at them, but, but, but the whole ultimate problem is, is that they are hearing what they don't want to hear. Their ears are, are, are taking in things they don't want to hear, so they reject it, and they hate Him for it. Who wants to be told that people are, they want to be told they're a sinner? Who wants to hear the truth of the gospel. This is exactly what Kevin was talking about last week, isn't it? This is the offense of the gospel. The offense of the gospel is that you and I are not good enough. The offense of the gospel is that you and I need a Savior, and it's not ourselves. It's not humanity. It's not education. It's Jesus Christ crucified, died, buried, and rose again. They have no excuse and they are more guilty. So when we go and we tell people the gospel, we have to understand we're, we're increasing their accountability. Once they hear, they know the truth, they are more culpable and responsible to respond to that truth. That's why there should be an urgency with us. That's why there should be a persuasion for us to persuade people to believe in the truth of the gospel. But here... Here's what else what, what people are doing within Christianity, and we're going to try to wrap this point up quickly here. This is the, the dump from all the podcasts and stuff, what's going on. I, I mentioned the Jesus seminar before, so here's what people think are the third option, because people want Jesus, but they don't want His words. They want Jesus, they want to claim Jesus, but they don't want His words. I, I think I've talked about the Jesus Seminar before. It, start, it was back in the 90s, I believe. Um, so what, what they did was they, want to, they wanted to discover the historical Jesus. And, and what they came out with was some sort of prophet sage who just told parables and pithy comments. Guess, guess how much of his words were, were taken out? 80%. Okay. Eight, you know how much of the book of John that we're going through right now, it's almost all gone. There was only one verse. It completely eviscerated the words of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, now we see, don't we? Because His words make us feel not so good about ourselves. 
because we feel guilty. So they've taken out all the words. One guy, one guy says, most, sco- most scholars, if they had worked through the sayings as we have, would tend to agree that there's virtually nothing in the fourth gospel of John that goes back to Jesus. Really? Look at what they did to the Lord's Prayer. This is just an example. So the red, they color-coded all these different words. So the red means Jesus actually said this. Everything else is, you add a little bit of doubt, right? The further it goes down, the black, Jesus didn't say. So what can we be certain about of the Our Father? Well, Our Father. And actually, there was a debate over Father because they wanted to add in Mother. So maybe we can say Our, Amen. That's the prayer. I mean, when we take their advice from that. There's other, there's other things that people are doing. You can read through this. This is progressive Christianity. These are, this is Christianity that is progressive, that has moved on from the, the old ways of doing things. And, and I kid you not, I kid you not, there are guys out there that are calling themselves ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ and doing what I'm going to tell you that they're doing here. So there's one guy, um, he believes that Jesus is some sort of internal voice in him that helps him understand those thorny passages in the Old Testament. And that's, that's really good that they're trying to take out the Old Testament because a lot of what Jesus says are quotes from the Old Testament or allusions to the Old Testament. So you got to go to the Old Testament and do that. Here's what he says. He says, it's all about Jesus. So I never go, no, yeah, in him, yeah, amen for us, not for this guy. It's all about Jesus. So I, so I never go wandering around the Old Testament without Jesus. So he takes Jesus with him, which is good, right? I guess that's a good practice. So at any moment, any moment as I'm reading, I can give pause and I can say, Jesus, what do you think of that? And Jesus says to me, Brian, what do you think of that? Well, Jesus, seems to me in light of what you taught us that we have to rethink this passage. And Jesus says, amen, Brian. <laughs> Can you imagine? Hey, hey, yeah, you're right, Brian. I was, that's wrong. God was wrong. Another guy, and makes sense of why they do this, another guy goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And if you're going to deal with sin, and if you want to get rid of the sinfulness or the, the, the guiltiness of mankind, then why not? Let's go back to Adam and Eve. That's a great place to start. Do you know what he says? He says that, that God actually lied to Adam and Eve because he didn't want them to know anything. He didn't want them to experience this, and God was afraid, so he prohibited them. And guess who told the truth? You guessed it, Satan. So now he's taken that, and he said, the word repent in the New Testament. This is a guy who literally claimed to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word repent does not mean to turn away from your sin. It means to expand your mind. He makes this big circular conclusion that, guess what? Adam and Eve did the right thing. There you go. So let's put this expand your mind into context. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have expanded their mind a long time ago in sackcloth and ashes. (laughs) 
do you see what happens when we put it into the context? I don't remember, I don't, I don't think I would ever experience a time when I was expanding my mind in sackcloth and ashes. This guy pits God against Jesus. And he can't do that. They want to take, take his words out because why? We're guilty, that's why. Gary Bird says, our response forms the basis of our judgment. If we accept, he accepts. If we reject, he rejects. Rejecting Jesus' words is rejecting Jesus. Hating his words is hating him. And hating Jesus Christ is hating God Almighty. That's your consequence. That's your connection. Because Jesus Christ is God incarnate in the flesh. And we cannot separate, we cannot pit Jesus of the New Testament versus God of the Old Testament and think that they are not in agreement with one another. There is an eternal consequence for how we treat Jesus because Jesus Christ is God Almighty who is eternal Himself. Both his words and as we will see, his works are those which God the Father himself sent him to do and say. So to reject Jesus' words and to reject his works is to reject God. It is one of the most important doctrines of the New Testament that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. That Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. And that everything that Jesus Christ says and does, God stands behind faithfully. It's absolutely crucial that in our churches, we teach the doctrines that are critical to the gospel, and this is one of them. Ligonier Ministry, so Patty Cobb told me to remind you guys that we need homework, so. <laughs> Ligonier, and so here's your homework, is to look up this survey that's been going around. Ligonier Ministry, Ligonier Ministry did a survey, this just came out, and it, it, is, it should blow our minds. This is a survey of, uh, of both non-evangelical Christians and also evangelical Christians, and it talks about the state of theology in our churches today. One of, one of the things that should blow our face off is that 65% of evangelicals believe that, they, that we are born innocent. That could be part of the problem, right? I don't need a Savior if I'm innocent. The, the more surprising factor in that is that 65% of evangelicals never had children. Because I, that's the only conclusion that I can make about these individuals, that they've never experienced children. Who, and if you experience children, and we were all children at some point, we didn't need to be taught how to do bad. We were really, really good at being, being bad. Here's the other one that's even more shocking. 43%, it's up 13% from 2020, believed that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 
So why should we listen to him? Pastor Dave responds to this on his blog. He, he writes a blog about this survey, and listen to what he says about it. The love affair with attractional Christianity is not producing disciples of Jesus Christ. Churches are increasingly filled with biblically and theologically shallow Christians at best and illiterate at worst. The evangelicals are abandoning the core doctrines of the faith, leading to a widespread biblical and theological illiteracy. Kevin was talking to the kids. I'm going to talk to the kids and the young adults, but also to the adults, so everyone in this room. But youth, young, young adults, understand how important doctrine is. Know your doctrine. Know your theology and live it out. And proclaim it to this world. Because people don't want to hear that Jesus Christ was God. People don't want to hear that Jesus' words are God's words to this world. But that's exactly what they are. And Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ verifies his identity and reveals who he is and who we are by his works, which is the second reason that they hate him. So not only do his words bring conviction, but his works bring conviction as well. And the response is still the same. Listen to what Jesus says here, verses 24 and 25. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. So again, Jesus connects himself to the Father. The previous verse is where we get our main idea from, where Jesus says, he who hates me hates my Father. So hating Jesus is hating God the Father, is hating God Almighty. Now he says it's not only that his words brought conviction, but his works as well. A few years ago, the, uh, the Edge YouTube's guitarist took his son out trick-or-treating in L.A. Both the Edge, that's his name, I guess, and his son, dressed in the Edge's trademark black beanie, black leather jacket, and a guitar slung around his neck. They went from house to house and doing trick-or-treating, and as they walked away from, from one house... They heard a conversation that the couple was having, and they said, that's a bit sad. That dad doesn't look anything like the edge. Little did they know, right? <laughs> the people who see Jesus Christ, the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, are populated by people who have no idea who's standing in front of them. They were oblivious. Jesus verifies his identity, verifies his mission, and verifies the identity of those who are watching. Notice what Jesus is doing here, hearing and seeing. He's increasing their culpability. They're guilty. They heard him, and they rejected. 
They saw him and they rejected. Because Jesus Christ is the one who is revealing this God that they do not know. And now that they have physically seen with their own eyes the works in which he has done, they have truly seen God incarnate, they have chosen to hate him. And we can pull that out and apply that to our own lives. How many times have we seen sometimes God operate in our lives? And maybe we don't believe that it's him. Maybe we, we attribute other causes to it. And, and, and people, people who, who, who wake up every morning, they step outside, they look up and they see the sun and they see the clouds and they see the birds and the trees and the beautiful plants and they say, no one created this, we evolved. Guilty. Notice what Jesus says here, and I, I, I like how he kind of adds this. He, he, says, he says, I've done things that, guess what, no one else has done. You know, I don't remember people walking on water. I don't remember people feeding thousands of people with a few loaves and a few fishes. I don't remember people raising the dead. He's basically saying, do you, do you know of anyone else who's done these things? Yeah, everyone, everyone saw these things. They saw who he was. They saw what he was doing. The works that Jesus has done testify to the truthfulness of his claims, of his words, and to his divine identity. And unlike the responses to celebrities of our day, they saw and they hated when they should have worshipped. James Boyce, I think, gets it right when he says that these works that Jesus has done, these miracles, reveal our spiritual bankruptcy. Because in comparison, before his works, we looked pretty good. <laughs> yeah, we're like, hey, yeah, I, I helped out a person today. Oh, yeah, did you hear, heal someone's blind eyes with mud? I haven't done that one yet. <laughs> How about raise the dead? Have you raised the dead? Have you fed that? No, no, no. It reveals our spiritual bankruptcy, which is what we do not want to see. So, of course, to get rid of this conviction, what do we need to do? Well, let's just take out his miracles, which is exactly what the Jesus Seminar did. Not, they took out his words, they take out his miracles, because both of those things make us guilty. They reveal who he is and who we are. exactly what we want to do. If we get rid of His words, if we get rid of His works, we have this loving, spineless, enabling Jesus Christ who has about as much power as a battery-operated action figure. We just make Jesus in our own image because we can't handle the real one. We don't want to see our need. Jesus healed the blind. He raised the dead. He walked on water. He fed thousands. He did wonderful works that no one has ever done before, yet they hated him and they killed him and they killed him for no reason whatsoever. 
Jesus quotes from Psalm 69 or Psalm 35 here. And it speaks to the zeal that David has, that Jesus has for God, but is persecuted because of it. Later on, we're going to see that those who persecute the disciples and later on us are actually going to think that they are rendering a service to God. Seal for God, but yet persecuted because of it. That's what the world wants to do. They want to stop us from saying exactly what we're saying today. They don't want to hear it. They kill and crucify their creator. Here the world's sin and the world's guilt are seen as clear as day, or should say night. The one who comes in love, they hang on a cross in hate, and it's a hate without cause. Pastor Dave again says, the cross was the most heinous hate crime of all time. It's the most violent expression of our sin against God because He exposes something that you and I don't want to see. And still to this day, they still hate Him because He does the same thing through His Word and through His people. And still to this day, everything that Jesus Christ did wasn't enough. People want more. People still violently attack Him. And they continue to despise Him, His Father, and those who follow Him. The man that we mentioned before, Sir Kingsley Amos, poetically spits his hatred at Jesus' face as if the first time wasn't enough. Here's a poem he wrote. Should you revisit us? Stay a little longer. Get to know the place. Experience hunger, madness, disease, and war. You've heard about them, true, the last time you came here. It's different having them. And what about a go at love, marriage, and children? All good, but bringing some risk of remorse and pain and fear of an odd sort. A sort one should again feel, not just hear about, to be qualified as a human race expert. On local life, we trust the resident witness, not the royal tourist. People have suffered worse and more durable wrongs than you did on that cross. I know you won't get me up on one of those things. Without sure prospect of ascending good as new on the third day, without I die but man shall live as a nice cheering thought. So next time, come off of it and get some service in, Jack. Long before you start laying down the old law, if you still want to then, go ahead, tell your dad that from me. 
I'm pretty sure if Jesus were to come back, he'd have the same reception. They would nail him to the cross just like they did the first time. You and I must see our reception will be no different. Throughout church history, the church has done wonderful, marvelous works, works of love, justice, and compassion, yet they continue to hate us. If they did this to God Almighty, what are they going to do to those who love Him? However, we must do the same as our Lord. We have to be hated without a cause. Just like Kevin said last week, right? Don't give them reason. The gospel is the reason. The gospel is offensive. That's why they should hate us. Not because we deliver it in an arrogant or mean or unloving fashion. Not because we're fighting for anything else other than the kingdom of God and that which is imperative to that kingdom. And we also need to respond the way Jesus responded, loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you. Do not repay evil with evil, but with kindness. For though they hated him without a cause, God had a glorious cause and purpose behind it, didn't he? Notice what he says. Why did they hate him? To fulfill it. To fulfill the Scriptures. The world's greatest hatred fulfills, fulfills God's great plan of love. The world's hatred reveals God's love and leads to our salvation. You and I are going to face this hatred, but we must understand that God has a glorious purpose for it, that He will do what is right for us, for those that love Him. Thing about it is Jesus is going to revisit, isn't He? Amos knows that now, and those who reject him will know it then, but this time that visitation is going to be much, much different, isn't it? You and I are about to remember what he did, why he did it. He did it because he loves us. He knew what the problem was. The problem was sin. That's a problem in each of our hearts. The answer is to repent and to accept Jesus' sacrifice for that sin on a cross because He's the one who took our guilt. And this is no better time to do, to do that than at this moment. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, have repented of your sin, please do so right now. He loves you. He wants us to be with Him in all eternity. This kingdom is going to end, but His kingdom is going to last forever. Father,
Thank you for these words, as difficult as they are. Help us to not be ashamed of your truth. Help us to not be ashamed of your gospel. Help us to proclaim the truth, yet with grace and love and gentleness, but still proclaim the truth. Help those who are rejecting you now to see that truth, have mercy on their hearts and minds so that they may turn, repent, and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can save them. Lord, and we thank you for our salvation in him. We thank you for your mercy and grace that we have. And as we remember what he did for us, Lord, Revive our hearts again. Stir within our hearts the need to proclaim this truth and the need to constantly apply this truth to our lives that apart from Him we have no good. You alone are good. You alone are love. You alone are justice. And you alone can save us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.